Billy Piper, Patrick Lacey, S.E. Howard, Waylon Jordan, and Jeremy Herbert. Five acclaimed authors of horror and dark fiction. Their twisted tales appeared in the acclaimed horror anthology Worst Laid Plans from Grindhouse Press. Now, their tales of vacation terror are coming to the big screen in a feature film adaptation from Genre Blast Films. Five acclaimed genre filmmakers will bring these stories to life. Samantha Koyesnik, John Hale, Vanessa Yonta Wright, Michael Escobedo, and Jeremy Herbert. Worst Laid Plans. Now crowdfunding on Indiegogo. This is one vacation you'll be dying to take. <laughs> Welcome to Dead Headspace, a part of Silver Shamrock Horrorcast, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock. I'm gonna start over. I was trying not to laugh with you two laughing. Well, you didn't even like take a second. You were like ready to launch. I thought I could do it. I could capture that spirit. Welcome to Dead Headspace, now part of Silver Shamrock Horrorcast, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock and Unburying the Dead, where Brennan, Ken McKinley, and myself exhume classic horror paperbacks for the new generation. New episodes come on and air, rather, every first of every month. Speaking of Silver Shamrock, they have this lovely box set. You can find them on their website. I believe it is uh, silvershamrock.com, uh, silvershamrockpublishing.com. Right now, I'm drinking audio listeners. Uh, you cannot see this. I'm holding up the current flavor. It's a little blurry. Stupid camera. It's called Bones. Uh, it's by Bones Coffee. Smory time. Clearly, I can't speak English either. It is delicious. Uh, tastes exactly what it sounds like, like a s'mores infused with coffee. I like it. I've also had the uh, jelly donut flavor, and I'm not a fan of jelly donuts, but they go with uh, a few different breweries for their coffee. Check them out. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Ghana, and all other major platforms, which now includes YouTube. That's right. You can now watch your favorite episodes, including this one. All you have to do is search Dead Headspace. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today we're joined by author Jennifer Susie. Say hi, Jennifer. Hey, everyone. And uh, Brennan, would you like to start us off with the baseline question? Absolutely. I'm going to knock it out in one take. Watch this, man. <laughs> you son Jennifer, of a bitch. We, li- <laughs> we like to ask all our first-time guests, what got you into horror? Oh, well, that's a pretty easy one. Um, 
what got me into horror was definitely my grandmother because she used to read to me and um, it was always like super dark twisted fairy tales like the original ones and right from the beginning like I totally loved those stories even though they were gruesome and probably should have scared the hell out of me but um, from there it's just it was just dark fiction head on whether it was movies books anything and um I know I've disappointed my mother quite a bit with that because <laughs> she thought like, you know, I was going to grow out of it, you know, and find something normal for a hobby. It just never happened. <laughs> I love that answer. We, you know, um, <laughs> the, the whole idea of having it start at such a young age, because, you know, that's, you're being kind of immersed in it. Um, you're, you're being told stories that don't necessarily have that, happy ending because those grim fairy tales uh those are those get real dark if you go with the originals now is that just something you kind of remember back to fondly and you're like oh maybe that's maybe that's where i got it or um do you feel like that caused you to just go looking for more oh yeah definitely i mean because those were the best stories ever like and i like disney too i loved fairy tales in general you know but of course the disney versions are much brighter um but yeah it was without those dark tales i would not have gone looking for even darker stuff because i was reading um while i was watching like in the 80s you know like these crazy dark fantasy movies that were pretty much horror movies that i probably shouldn't have been watching but, you know, I did. And then um, as soon as I could, I was getting out adult horror novels and ghost stories and anything I get my hands on from the library. So, you know, it's just it's it's been a thing and it's just gotten stronger and stronger the older I get. I just can't help it. I love it. <laughs> what made you jump from being a consumer to being a creator? Well, um, I always liked writing. I was it was once something I was good at in school. And when I was 12, my mother, she got me a typewriter, like kind of like one of those old fashioned typewriters with the tape and everything. And she was like, you know, now you can write your stories here. And I was like, God, I never really thought about writing stories, but okay. So I started writing this horrible, horrible, I don't even remember what I wrote, which is probably a good thing, but I wrote this horrible epic. Like it was like VC Andrews meets Stephen King meets Anne Rice, which of course at the time were all my favorite authors, but it was just, it was God awful. And it's a good thing. It doesn't exist anymore. But after that, I mean, it was just in school, I was writing all the time and I was going to keep going with it. But you know, when you become an adult, you have to get a job and you got to do all this other stuff. And a lot of your hobbies, no matter how much you love them, you kind of got to give them up for a while. And that's what unfortunately happened for me for many years. Adulting is sincerely overrated. <laughs> it really is. Patrick, throw it to you, buddy. Well, back to the Disney horror versions. Uh, I, you know what? I wish I could say this was a hundred percent accurate, but I did hear that Cinderella, which is from the late 1600s, another French tale like Beauty and the Beast, but that uh, her toes were cut off so they could fit in the glass slipper. <laughs> oh, oh, it's not even it's not even that. And it's not Cinderella, you know, thankfully, because she is our heroine. We wouldn't want her to get hurt. It's the stepsisters mm. when the prince when the prince comes and it was a first slipper in the old fairy tales, not a glass one. When he comes with the shoe and they can already tell looking at it 
that there's no way my big ass foot's going to fit in that shoe. One of them slices off her toes and the other stepsister, she slices off her own heel and puts the shoe on. So there's, I mean, blood and whatever else. And I guess everyone else was fine with that. I I mean, no one said anything to them. Like, what are you doing? God, stop. (laughs) (laughs) You know? It is interesting that, like, this is so random, but, like, guys like Walt Disney or Quentin Tarantino, they're they're students of what they love, the genre or industry that they love. And, I mean, they kind of reimagine the story. It's a remake, but centuries later, it's so cool. You know what? I'm real curious if there's any authors like that. I've never thought of that. If there's any authors out there that are remaking old tales... And kind of not saying it's their own version, but mm-hmm. putting their own spin on it. Oh, I think people do all the time. I mean, there's all sorts of reimaginings and retellings are very popular. Uh, and some are definitely more creative than others. I've read some, you know, that being really excited to read it. And then I read it and I'm like, oh, it's essentially the same story. So that's less cool. But when they really do something different with it then that's super fun. You know, like I've read so many um, stories with like mythological themes or um, even fairy tale themes that, you know, who does a really good one is, um, it's not necessarily horror, but it's definitely super dark fantasy, is uh, Sarah J. Moss does some really good retellings. Like her A Court of Thorn and Roses is basically Beauty and the Beast, but with evil fairies. And it's super good and it gets really better too. And there's a new one coming out. So I'm dying to read it. <laughs> Is there any story? It could be Disney or any older story that you would not necessarily write yourself, but would like to see something reimagined in a completely different way where it captures the core of that older story. I mean, any of them, I, I, any of the fairy tales, anything from mythology, as long as it's done, not like a direct retelling, because again, if you already like the original, a direct retelling is not very imaginative, and you're probably not going to live up to like the original author. But if you can do something cool with it in a twist, I will be there. I will read it. I don't even care. I love it all. saw today that there's a remake on Train to Busan, and that came out only 2016. I, look, I, I, I don't, I'm not one of these people that don't like remakes, but that's fucking crazy. Yeah, and that's another thing, too. Like, sometimes remakes happen, and it's like, there's how many, I mean, I'm not a huge comic book fan person, but how many Spider-Mans do we need back-to-back? I mean, come on. I know he's a great character. But still, we we could slow them down a little bit, right? <laughs> I like the original, too. The, the ones with Tobey Maguire? Yeah, the third one never happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, my nieces made me watch that. They liked him, too. And I have not watched the new ones, but one of my nieces is totally in love with that kid that's playing him. I forget what his name is. It's like Tom, Tom Holland, um, I think? Uh, yeah, Tom Holland, which... Mm-hmm. There's like three other famous Tom Hollands. One's in horror. He's, I think, a director. I forget who the other one or two are. Um, you know, I want to throw this question. You should think about it and give it a second. But 
if I were to redo a few older stories, so we're talking from the late 19th century, I got three. The Gingerbread Man, where it would be a splatter, and maybe this is already done, I don't know, where it would be a splatter <laughs> punk on, um, I, I have a bad eating habit. It's worse than, I, I could kick <laughs> smoking cigarettes, I kicked drinking like a fish, but fucking eating sugar, man, I mean, I... Sugar is the worst drug that there is. <laughs> so I would have a splatterpunk version where it's something to do with that, where it's kind of like, uh, take it any way you want, but that'd be a fun way, maybe. Or you could do like Jack and the Beanstalk. There could be a million things with that. And mm-hmm. the third one was, and I can't remember it. I don't remember. Lost it. Brendan, what would you do? What like fairy tale would I reimagine? If you could, yeah, if you could pick like any older story to kind of reimagine it. Oh shit! Down the rabbit hole we go, man. Um, That's a good. I one. don't know. I, That's I, a good I, one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, Alice in Wonderland. Let's do it. <laughs> well, and you know, though the Gingerbread Man, it kind of like it's like Shrek gave an opening to a splatterpunk retelling. A reimagining of the gingerbread man getting his gumdrop buttons ripped off, getting his leg torn off. I mean, come on. Like it's there. The the, the audience is there for that already. <laughs> I love Shrek. It's such a fun movie. It um, is such a fun movie. <laughs> have you guys happened to go out to get Universal Studios to ride Shrek 4D? I don't know if it's still there. It's been quite a while since I've been to Universal. No, I live crazy close to Florida. Too. Well, I mean, not crazy close. It's like an eight-hour drive to Orlando. But I still have not gone to Disney World, Universal, anything like that. I really, really want to, though. It's definitely a bucket list trip. It's fun. Um, well, the Shrek ride, I mean, I was a little kid when we went, but my dad was cracking up the whole time. That and the Muppets, the two old men. I love them. <laughs> now I think that he was laughing because it's probably him, and I didn't get that yeah. as a kid until right now. But yeah, yeah, Florida, you know, I don't know what else. There's a whole lot of fun stuff to do in Florida, but Disney World's a hell of a fun time. It's expensive. I mean, they clearly will bleed you dry, but it's fun. It can't be worse than Six Flags. We've been to the one in Atlanta a few times, and um, it's horrible. But I will say, and I don't even do it anymore. They only did it at least the one time that we went on Halloween. They had um, an Alice Cooper themed haunted house. <laughs> really? It was the best haunted house I've ever been to. And I'm sorry for my sister who I know is going to watch this, but I'm totally telling on you. She peed her pants. She was that scared. <laughs> she legitimately pissed herself. Yes. We had to go on the water ride after. So that way her pants <laughs> would get covered up. That is fantastic. It's a creative solution. It is. And I, I should also add, we were adults. So it's not like she was like five. <laughs> You're Alice in Coop- so much trouble right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love Alice Cooper. Him and Ozzy. Oh, kind I know. A, yeah. Kind of a fan of Dio. I don't know. He's given, he, you know, he's hot and cold sometimes. But hey, let's uh, switch gears to Clementine's Awakening. Is yeah. that so that nobody can uh, pick on you for not liking Dio? No, I mean I like I Dio. Why you so quickly? No, no, no. no, I like. Okay, fine. You want to talk about? I like Dio. No, no, no. It's it, Jennifer and I will talk about the book. You go listen to Holy Diver and come back when you've learned your lesson. Yeah. No, 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 no. That see, look. In the dark. Rainbow in the dark. Yes, that's on the same album. I think that you know what he's good. I like him, but he's no Aussie. 
and he's no Alice Cooper. I also like Dee Snyder a whole lot, too. Oh. Well, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So look at what you're making me do. I'm making Jennifer not like my taste in music. So let's go. No, no. She, you know, she picked up uh, a lot faster than, you know, we've seen other guests that in order to be comfortable on the show, you have to rip on Patrick. It's, that's, nope. it's a rite of passage. <laughs> that's not true. I'm going to go back to me doing the show by myself. <laughs> um, Clementine's Awakening. Brennan, you want to lead the way with that, sir? Yeah, I mean, before we jump into the book itself, um, I want to talk about the setting. The, the biggest thing that jumped out to me right from page one is just how alive you made Savannah feel. Now, you're in Atlanta, which, uh, correct me if my geography is horrific, but is it, that's on the other side of the state. Um, from uh, Savannah, isn't it? Well, it's it's a good distance away. Um, the crazy thing about Georgia is, and I, I think you guys will get like this comparison since we're all pretty much from New England, like the entire state is as big as the entirety of New England. So like picture like the distance of Connecticut to like Vermont, you know, so it's kind of in the middle to the north, but it's only like five hours, six hours away. So it's not that bad of a trip. And that still only covers like half the area of the state. It's Lots such a huge state. Yeah. yeah. I, I'll be honest. I'm in message. I'm in southeastern Massachusetts and I complain when I have to drive to Rhode Island sometimes. So, I mean, I could never <laughs> hack it in a big state. But uh, the reason I ask is because. Uh, it just it it felt like you knew the city so well. So what made you say this has got to be the setting and how did you go about planning to bring it to life? Well, um, I knew from the start when I was sitting down to write this, I knew I wanted to do a ghost story and I knew I wanted to do something set in a restaurant because it's just a world that I'm very familiar with. And I had stuff I wanted to say about it. But when I was thinking, like, where should I set it? I mean, instantly. I was just like Savannah because, you know, the first time I went was when I moved to Georgia. So that was like 20 years ago. And, um, you know, I was excited to go on a road trip. You know, my friend told me about it, but I didn't really know much about Savannah except like some vague mention in Gone with the Wind, you know. And then she told me to read Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. And at first I was like, ew, I don't want to read nonfiction. That's so boring. But she's like, no, you really want to read this book. And it was such a gorgeous, twisted book. So I went like ready. Like I had already met all these other characters that were real life characters through that book, you know, gotten prepared for settings and hauntings and weird Southern stuff. And it definitely did not disappoint. And um we went on a ghost tour too. my first trip. I've actually managed to go on a ghost tour almost every trip I've made to Savannah because it is so freaking fun. You know, obviously as a horror fan, I love stuff like that anyway, but even if you're not a horror fan, you're walking through this gorgeous atmosphere. Like it's unlike any other place that you've ever been. The closest I can compare it with is kind of like when you're walking through Boston And, um, you know, you're walking through like the historic district or like the North End and you really feel like a sense of history. And that's what Savannah is like. It's the only city in the South that's really like that because everything else got destroyed, you know. So it's kind of like a time capsule of what what the South was like before the Civil War. And, um, you know, as a history fan, it's super interesting. But I just I wanted to 
in the best way I could, I wanted to showcase how much I love that city through this book, too. Can you talk about the synopsis real quick? Because I don't want either one of us to give away anything. Mm-hmm. Just for uh, potential, you know, readers, it'd probably be a good idea. Okay. So um, Clementine, she's pretty young. She just graduated high school. And she's coming from a broken home. And she gets her first job at a restaurant. And so she gets there thinking, this will be the key to my future, the key to a new life. And of course, it's not that easy. You know, restaurant works very hard. And on top of all of that, she encounters a ghost on her first, you know, first day of her shift. So she becomes friends with the ghost because it's a young girl like her. So, you know, they kind of bond. And while they're bonding, the ghost uh, sees that, you know, sometimes people are picking on Clementine or sometimes she's got a rude customer. So the ghost decides to kind of pitch in and defend her by playing pranks on these people. And it's fun at first, you know, it's lighthearted, but somehow the energies from their interactions call up another ghost to come into the game. And it's the ghost of the man who murdered Clementine's friend, Rosemary. So when he comes, obviously everything intensifies, gets really crazy and it becomes sort of a battle to see, you know, how is she going to not only survive and save her friends who are also now being targeted, but, you know, still make the life that she wants. So, yeah, I guess that's about as best that I can do without spoiling stuff. So, <laughs> uh, Bernie? Um, well, I was going to say, before we jumped into the synopsis, I actually had another question about Savannah. Now, you focused a lot on the ghost tour stuff, and I'm wondering, mm-hmm. is that a reflection on you, or is it like a big, big part of the city's like culture? It's a huge part of the city's culture. Like, okay, so 20 years ago, when I went on a ghost tour, now this was only a couple years after Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil had been written, and that was when um, Savannah experienced like this massive tourist boom because that book and the movie were so popular. So one of the things that, of course, kept the tourists coming back besides the sights and stuff in that story is the fact that people are super into their local ghosts there, you know, especially as uh, downtown Savannah was going through a massive reconstruction and renovation. So all these old houses are now coming with all these old legends of this or that person who died there, spirits that haunt the graveyards. Plus, if you walk through the streets, I think I mentioned it in part of the book. It's absolutely true. Like, if you walk through certain parts of the streets downtown, you'll see, like, the pavement buckling and stuff. And I remember on the ghost tour I was on, I was like, God, you know, they need to fix this. This looks terrible. And um, the ghost tour guide was like, well, they can't really fix it because those coffins coming out of the ground. And I'm like, oh, my God. So people are, like, literally just driving over coffins that are popping out of the ground and some of the most beautiful sites like Forsyth Park or a couple of the squares are actually mass graves from yellow fever victims um, uh, from people who died during the slave auctions I mean thousands of people just buried without individual markers who even knows if they did anything to consecrate the ground I don't know so 
yeah, the ghost stuff there, it is a huge business. And there's, I mean, there might've been maybe half a dozen ghost tours operating when I went there 20 years ago. There's now dozens. I mean, from big to small, that's a lot of people. And even if they don't do that as a side business, you can go down there, sit in any bar, any cafe. You can just have a chat with a local and they will tell you everything. Like you don't even need to pay for a tour. They'll tell you everything. They'll take you wherever you want to go because they're super hospitable people, you know? So yeah, it's, it's a cool place. So does it uh, get, no. uh, Oh, sorry, Pat, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, with exceptions like Jennifer, no New Englanders allowed a bunch of uh, douchebags up there. <laughs> I, they do, I, they do still call us Yankees. So I don't know if you two are. Word. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I don't know if you two are fans of uh, Dennis uh, Larry, but he loves that word. Which Douche, one? Douchebag. Oh, douchebag. I have not watched him for a long time, but I did used to like him. His stand-up comedy is hilarious. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm getting off track. Brennan, go ahead. Enough of my antics. I was just wondering if if the, uh, you know, with the jump in the amount of tours, does it feel very authentic or does it feel touristy? You know, I think of, um, I don't know, when you lived in New England, you, you must have visited Salem, right? Oh, yeah. I actually went yeah. um, on Halloween. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I went once on Halloween and I don't think I'd ever do that again, you know, standing room only. But uh, it, to, to me, Salem feels just so extremely touristy and, you know, inauthentic at times, depending on what you're there to do, I suppose. Um, how would you compare that atmosphere to Savannah? Um, I would say, well, when I went to Salem, now this was even further than 20 years ago. Uh, this was like year I graduated I think or started college so like 96 97 was when I went and you know they had the cute little buildings set up and they had some people running around in costumes and they put on a few like stage performances in the street which which were pretty cool so I liked that I did not get to see what it became now I mean I'm sure now it's crazy um and Savannah uh it's similar I mean they do the tour guides if they're good they will put on a show like I saw one tour um, and I kind of gave a nod to him in the book. Like it's sweltering hot and this dude's walking around in like velvet and, <laughs> and lace, you know, just to look like some authentic, like antebellum lordling or whatever, you know, but it, it's, it's done in a way that um, I think for horror fans, it wouldn't necessarily be off putting because look at some of the movies and stuff that we like, like, we don't necessarily like a horror movie because it's Oscar worthy or whatever. Sometimes we enjoy the campiness and we enjoy a little tongue in cheek. So, you know, and I think they do it in a way that's entertaining versus eye rolling, you know? Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to bring it back. I'm going to reel it back to the book. Um, but before I do that, I don't detect any kind of accent with you that is Southern. And, <laughs> I, it's just, it's interesting because some people will pick up on things like I've lived in Jersey only for five years. I've stopped saying things like Packy and I, I mean, I, I stopped using lingo from uh, up in Massachusetts because people don't know what the fuck I'm saying. <laughs> okay. Let, let me ask you this real quick. Just a quick aside. What's a grinder? Uh, a grinder. Well, some think it's a sub others call it. Well, I say sub. So the grinder's a sub. Right. It's a sub, right? 
I ask for that down. Well, I used to. I know better now. But I'd say like, oh, God, I could kill for a grinder. And people look at me like, what the fuck are you even talking about? What is that? That's not a thing. My boyfriend thought, and we've been together pretty much the whole time I've been here. But he's like, you're just making up words. There's no way that that's a thing. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but no, my accent, it hasn't really ever gone away. You know, like, and sometimes when I'm around people from this area, you know, a little Southern does come out because I don't know. I think we all do that. Like we kind of start reflecting subconsciously the people that we're around. But, um, but yeah, my boyfriend, he gets so irritated when I'm on the phone with like my friends from back home or family because he's like why is your voice so different why are you talking so fancy and I'm like fancy well like what are you even talking about I'm not slurring my words together with like just all vowels or whatever like you people do (laughs) (laughs) you know but then when I talk to my friends from back home they're like you sound so southern like you don't even sound like yourself at all so I mean I guess I don't know there's got to be something in there it's just I've never let it get that bad I guess That's hilarious. In the before times when I used to go back home in Massachusetts, I'd just hang out with all my friends, get together, and I'd I'd close my eyes and just listen to them talk. I'm like, I fucking love this. So no one knows no one knows they're ours. We sound like idiots. I love it. <laughs> but how do you order a soda though? Oh uh, well <laughs> I don't kidding. I don't drink soda, but I have learned one thing. When you're ordering a soda in Georgia. It's a Coke. It's always a Coke. It could be Mountain Dew. It could be Pepsi. It could be Sprite. But you're ordering a Coke. So I'll have a Coke Mountain Dew. <laughs> I, I've heard that before, and it's so it's so strange. Um, we uh, th- there was a band called uh, Showbread that uh, was kind of um, I-, I guess I'd put them in that kind of like punk hardcore category. They are originally from Savannah. And they used to, whenever they were going through uh, Massachusetts, uh, they knew my wife um, from when she lived in Oregon. They would always stay with us. And I just, I always found that so strange. Like, can I get a Coke Pepsi? Um, (laughs) It's, I I mean, I suppose if it's everyday life, fine. But like, if you really break it down and analyze it, it makes my brain hurt. Coke is so serious down here because, of course, their headquarters are in Atlanta and they've got like this big building, a Coke museum, all sorts of stuff. I've waited on like executives that work at Coke and um, they have to ask, I don't know if they still do, but they did back then. They have to ask when they're coming into your restaurant, if you serve Coke products or not, if you don't, they have to go somewhere else. Cause if it ever get, if word ever gets back to the Coke company that they're drinking anything else, even if they don't order a Coke, they could order a beer, they could order a water. But if it doesn't have it in the restaurant, they're not allowed to eat there. <laughs> I'm not surprised with that for one speci- <laughs> for one specific reason. I worked for Polar Beverages for five years, and um, I talked, as Brandon can contest, I, I make friends everywhere. So I talked to all the Coke reps, I talked to all the Pepsi and other vendor reps, and I heard that only Coke does that. Like they're the guys that sell for them. They said if if we're going to a barbecue. Again, in the before times, if we're going to a family event and they're not having, we got to ask if they're not having Coke, we can't go. I'm like, dude, you're off the clock. Fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> well, because it, it's just one of those things. They could take the chance. But if word ever got back, I mean, that's it. They're screwed, you know? <laughs> they're, they're a tight bunch. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I like some of their products, but yeah, 
fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> They're never going to sponsor us. They can go fuck themselves. Unless they do want to sponsor us, in which case we welcome our soda overlords. <laughs> That's true. Coke, if you want to sponsor with Dead Headspace, we can say fuck Pepsi and uh, not Polar. I love Polar, so that's not happening. <laughs> but let's go back to Clementine's Awakening. Now, um, uh, this is a weird way to jump into this. I'm not sure even Brennan's going to know my way to go about this. But the connection with a book we just <laughs> talked about last episode, Heart Strange and Dreadful by Tim McGregor, has a weird connection. We were, uh, I was reading them at the same time. Uh, they're both, and actually another book I'm reading right now uh, for the Pikecast podcast uh, called The Eternal Enemy. They all involve... I love uh, that one. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, I'm going to finish it up either tonight or tomorrow morning. And um, they're all about, well... Yours isn't a teenager, but she's close. They're all young women, either older adults or young young women. Uh, Hester in Heart Strange and Dreadful is 16, so she's the youngest of those three. But the thing of all three of them, so we got Heart Strange and Dreadful based in the 1800s. Yours is based in, in now in modern time. And, uh, and uh, Christopher Pikes is the 90s, early 90s. They're all similar in the sense where they're always questioning themselves, always down, and always thinking they don't deserve things. Um, and they're all different reasons. I mean, the one in the 1800s, women didn't have a voice. So, I mean, that makes sense. In your case, the mom, I uh, hope this is, I don't think this spoils it really, but the mom was just not very nice to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> and I just found that very interesting. Um, I read multiple books at once. I, I don't know if the listeners do, but uh, Bernie and I have to for the show. And I, I just wanted to point that out. I thought that was really cool, really unique, but at the same time, very sad because I feel like that is true and has been true for a lot of women. I'm not a woman, so I don't know. But do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I mean, and I would say it's not even necessarily um you know, relevant only to women. You know, I think that any of us, depending on the environment that we're raised in, you know, the the building blocks and, you know, the, the hand of cards or however you want to put it, depending on what we're given, um, that can really shape the people we become, uh, how we view ourselves based on how we perceive other people to view us. And um, that's why it's so important. I mean, not to have a perfect home. No one's ever going to have a perfect home. But to have, you know, if you're a parent, to make the best home possible for your kid. You know, because stuff's going to happen and no one's perfect. And maybe your kid will do stuff, you know, that is stupid. But you still want to do your best by them because, I mean, you could really mess them up for a long time. You know, I'm really fortunate that uh, I've got a great family. But, you know, we didn't have it always easy. And there was a lot of stuff that happened when I was growing up that, you know, messed with my head. But, um, you know, I tried to push through. And if, you know, there's times where you doubt what you can do. And especially as a woman, you know, sometimes that is an extra burden, you know, but you've got to, uh, at one time, you, you've got to realize, you know, okay, this bad stuff happened, but uh, I have goals and I want to do stuff. So I'm going to have to try to figure out some way to do it. And if it means cutting off everything else, then maybe I need to do that for a time, you know? And I think that's what Clementine does too. I mean, she realizes that she has to get away from 
you know, the home she came from, but it's not just so easy to leave. I mean, all that still follows you to some extent. So you have to get out of the environment, but you've also got to work on yourself too, to try to erase some of the harm that's been done and and move forward as best you can. It's a comment she makes in the book where, uh, again, this doesn't spoil it, but uh, she mentions how in stories it's, you rarely see the aftermath of a female facing off uh, an antagonist. And I'll leave it there because I don't want to say too much. Brendan, you got any <laughs> comments on the previous topic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of one thing that really hit me hard about reading this, uh, the I have someone very close to me um, who Clementine's mom, that was their mom, um, almost down to a T, even down to the fact where the grandmother kind of held things together, but by a very loose thread, um, <laughs> her her, her uh, grandma was even a heavy smoker. Like it just, it, it, it almost just, it, <laughs> it seemed like I was reading about that person. Um, and I wondered, and you, you know, certainly you don't have to answer this if, if it's too personal, but I wondered if you drew on some kind of experience, whether personal or um, anecdotal to create that relationship. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and again, uh, I, I am happy to say that the problems that did happen in my youth, my family and I have moved past them. But for a time, yeah, it was absolutely dark and horrific. Addiction is a terrible thing. And it it's probably one of the worst things that can happen to a family because the, the wounds that it makes, you know, they last a lifetime. It's, it, you know, it's, terrible. So um, I definitely drew from experience, but I think a lot of authors do that too, you know, with their best characters. It's not that you're writing purely about yourself, you know, because Clementine is a different person than me, but um, you know, there's always a little grain here and there of truth, you know, the whole write what you know thing, you know, there's always a teeny little bit of you here and there sprinkled throughout a manuscript. And, um, but yeah, that was definitely something that I can relate to, you know, is having a fear going home. Like, what am I going to find when I go home this time? You know, what's waiting for me? And sometimes there are people in your life, like I had wonderful grandmothers and they were often there if I needed to talk or vent or whatever, but at the same time, and maybe it was their generation, you know, cause I don't know that it would happen today necessarily, but um, they only interfere so far in the lives of their children, even for their grandchildren, because, you know, at least where I grew up, you know, people mind their own business. Like that's a thing, you know, not, it's not like the South where everyone, you can meet someone and in five minutes, you know, their entire life story, you know, all <laughs> good and bad, you know, but back, back up uh, North in New England, you know, you don't really know a lot about people, you know, and they don't really share. We're not a sharing type of bunch, even with our family. You know, so there's there's definitely a line. People don't interfere that much in each other's lives. They're there to support you. They're there to, lo- you know, they're they're good allies to have, but they're only going to go so far. You know, so you, it, in a way that's good, though, because if you can work it right, that's another way that you can learn to take care of yourself because you have to, you know, no one else is going to do it. I got a question about that. Uh, geographic wise, um, I've heard from a friend that's from California originally. That uh, New England, you know, specifically, 
it's it's cold all the time uh, <laughs> up there in the winter, you know, and it seems like it's cold there all the time year round. It's not, but it seems like it. And we're colder, not my words there, but I agree with it. We're a colder group of people than Californians. And I'm real curious if it has to do with the, the climate that we live in because it's it's when it's cold, it's fucking brutal. Like, <laughs> like the thing in Texas that's happening right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have I haven't gone through not my government not being prepared because we deal with it every year. But mm-hmm. there's been a there not and maybe not even every winter, but there's been a lot of winters where we have gone without power for days. And yep. um, I just remember the only place being open is Cumberland Farms. Where yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that are Dunkin' Donuts, and the only thing is, is like we're just skidding around, you know, smoking a little, doing the only thing that like is fun because going home is fucking cold, and the only thing that you can keep for heat on is a, you know, the fireplace, and I can't watch anything. I wasn't even reading books all that much when I was still living there, and I, I don't know. I do you guys think that's like due to the climate that it kind of makes people a little bit more cold? Because even in my families, like some of my cousins, one in particular, like I'm tall, I'm six three, six four, depending on what doctor you ask, I guess. But um, one of my cousins is six seven, very quiet guy, and my mom would always comment how I'm the only one that he seems to talk to because, I, like I said, I can talk to anyone. But <laughs> I, I think it kind of goes along with what you were saying that you know we aren't like the southern type and i mean it i don't know how to explain it do do you guys think it's partially due to weather we don't talk because we're miserable because the weather sucks 11 (laughs) months a year is what you're saying (laughs) i mean there's there could be a correlation you know for sure um we're a pretty wild bunch my family when the family is together, like our parties are legendary at, to the point where word would get around. And when I was going to school at the same place that my dad and my uncles went to school, they'd be like, oh, God, another Susie. Oh, shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, but no, like uh, I think like I describe it not necessarily as cold. I think we're just more reserved and we're only reserved when we don't know who we're dealing with. You know what I mean? Like we wave when we see people that we know driving by or whatever. We're not assholes, you know, but no, we don't walk up to people. (laughs) I mean, in the Cape, yeah, you wave to everyone, but I mean, you go to Brockton. I mean, I don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) But like, I mean, I lived for a time in a town, Stafford, that was so small that it's one of those places where you could say everyone knows everyone and you're not far off, you know, but like people would drive by and you'd know them. So you'd wave and whatever you might talk behind their back, but only to yourself, like down in the South, like gossip and backstabbing is an art form. You know, it's like a French court or something, (laughs) you know, where they, they will literally be talking about you talking all sorts of shit. The minute you walk up, they're like, Oh, Hey girl, what's up? (laughs) (laughs) so um but yeah i think it's just we're reserved we keep our problems to ourselves like there's all sorts of adages i don't know if y'all's um grandparents or parents used to say stuff but like we don't air our laundry out in public and 
whatever, like weird stuff like that. Like we just don't, we're screwed up as hell, you know, (laughs) but, but we would never let anyone see it. So. (laughs) I'll tell you, it warms my cold new England heart. uh, When you, when you, when you said, yeah, cumbies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and like 90% of our listenership has no idea what we mean by now, right now but <laughs> sounds sexual it, uh, yeah, it does. you know well, going back, going in Stafford back. it probably is sorry all my <laughs> former neighbors but no like um, that was we had a Cumberland Farms and we had I forget what the other gas station was but they were right across the street in the matter. down. I know in the downtown area. So like that was where the library and like city hall. And it was literally like one little rotunda, you know, and that's it with some old buildings, but we had no place to hang out as kids. Mm. So if you lived close to town, you would hang out in the parking lot of one of those two gas stations. (laughs) That, that was it. That was what we had. So I don't know if Brandon was going to bring this up, but I'm going to bring this back again to Clementine's Awakening. He made a funny comparison, at least funny to me, to Henry. <laughs> Brandon, can you <laughs> can you please tell her about that? The the I I when I, whenever I was reading it, um, I always pictured uh, the cartoon Johnny Bravo because he's so big <laughs> and he's so broad, um, in the way you describe him. And, uh, you know, as a as a as a piano player myself, I kind of appreciated I pictured myself in that role. But uh, no, I did that. that That's what came to mind with with Henry. Um, now, actually, I, I, I did want to talk about as far as, you know, bringing the uh, piano in to enhance the uh, atmosphere of the restaurant. I wanted to talk about the restaurant. Now, you you mentioned that. You know, you worked in food service and you didn't even have to mention that because anybody who has ever worked in food service could read that opening chapter and know full well that there's no way you're writing that without (laughs) that experience. Um, Was it important to you to kind of get that authentic? Because, I mean, there's there's a lot of details in it. I know if I was writing that, I would almost worry, am I putting too much into it and distracting from the character or the plot? But it worked perfectly. was it important to you to capture that? It absolutely was. Um, I think one of the times I first started thinking I need to write about a restaurant was before I even decided to start writing again. And, you know, it was just after a shitty shift. And I was like, just taking a break, taking a breather. And I was like, you know, I really don't know how many people understand what working in a place like this entails you know, what you put yourself through, not just physically, but emotionally, you know, it it doesn't even mean that you necessarily care about your job, but you're opening yourself up to so much to make money. And sometimes it's great. And you get, you know, you meet awesome people. And sometimes you meet the most horrible people who it's not just enough for them to be like, the food sucked or whatever. They've got to go and take it to such an extreme. It's like, why are you doing this? Like, what is wrong with you that you would do this? You know, cause I'm sure you've seen like YouTube videos of people getting into like fist fights cause someone left the onions on their sandwich or something. I mean, stupid stuff, you know? So I, I thought to myself, someone really needs to write a story about what servers and cooks and bartenders, what we all go through, because I, I there's people out there who obviously have never worked in any sort of customer service. And maybe if they had some education, they'd realize that they need to tone it down a little bit. 
So instead of, you know, waiting on someone to write something like that, I guess I just wrote something like that. So it it definitely was important for me to capture the details because I really wanted to do justice to everyone I know. I mean, all of my friends, especially, but anyone who's worked in this industry, we are all like brothers and sisters at arms. You know, it it is a brotherhood. It is. I mean, that's why, like, there's uh, sites on um, Facebook, Instagram, like the Angry Bartender and Server Nightmares. You can look at those any time of the day and you're like, yes, whoever you are that posted this, I feel you. I've been there, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, it's just it's a group that um is so huge. So many millions of people have done this job. But, you know, I just wanted to show that I've done it and I appreciate everything that we've all suffered and I respect all of them. So, <laughs> So it's a little bit of an attitude of, uh, you know, we're going to get to the ghosts, but y'all are going to learn a little bit first. Um, and, you know, like you kind of said, there's there's two types of people in a restaurant, those who have done the job and those who haven't. And, you know, I, I worked in a restaurant from probably about 14 until, you know, uh, late teens, early 20s. And um, the, the any scene that you write where, a customer puts their hands on a waitress. It almost might seem like it's in there for dramatic purposes. And just the, the number of waitresses I worked yeah. with, it's not, it's, mm-hmm. you know, and, and a lot of times you'll watch those poor girls suck it up because they want to mm-hmm. keep their job because it's not worth it. Or, I mean, is that something you went through a lot? You're nodding your head as soon as I yeah. put it out there. <laughs> yes. I mean, in in the good and the bad sense, working in a restaurant is a hotbed of sexual and physical, every type of harassment possible. And I say in a good sense, because obviously not that any of that is good when it's done against anyone's wishes. But we're all a bunch of children, you know, all of us restaurant workers. So like, there's definitely among your friends, the banter is like, very childish humor. It's like potty humor and talking sex a lot and whatever, but it's different when it's, I mean, obviously it's different when you're among your friends, no one's doing this to belittle or hurt or antagonize anyone. But yeah, as far as like the bad side of it happens all the time. And I would like to say, especially to women, but I've seen it happen to some guys I've worked with too. I worked one time when I was a manager, which was the worst job decision I ever made. But when I was a manager, I had a really young, you know, good looking guy who was one of my bartenders, sweetest kid ever, like wonderful guy. And he had like some creepy old lady regulars who would come in and the things they said to him would, I mean, it would make your hair fall out. Shocking that like these old grandmothers, some of them were school teachers in the school district talking about how they'd like to take him out for a drink and that they could teach him a thing or two or whatever. And I was like, okay, they're cut off. And he's like, what you mean? You want me to tell them they can't have any more alcohol? I'm like, yeah, because I want them to get the fuck out. They can't talk to you like that, you know? And he's like, well, thanks, Jen. No one's ever done anything like that. I'm like, well, why wouldn't I do something like that? I mean, just because you're not a girl, I mean, you're a person too. Um, yeah. I mean, unless unless you're hiding something and you want one of them to ask you out, you know, <laughs> of <Could> course, <laughs> right? <laughs> of course. I mean, but yeah, uh, I've been grabbed, I've been pinched, I've been called, you know, all sorts of names. Um, 
I've had to have a manager walk me out to the car before because there were guys that acted like they were going to come back, you know, in case I wanted to go on that special date after work. And it's like, no, of course I don't, you know. And um, at one time I had a, a bartender had to hop over the counter because a drunk guy grabbed me and yanked me from swiping his card. Ooh. And the bartender had to grab him and throw him like and he did. He physically threw him out of the bar. But I still swiped his card, so it was good. <laughs> I hope you got a big There's that training. That. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what? I, just... I um I'll make this short and sweet. We uh me and my wife went to a restaurant that we went to last year for Valentine's Day. Great experience last year this time. Not so much. Wasn't the waitress. Was the kitchen was the manager that for some reason on the one of the busiest nights was in the back, staying in the back, never <laughs> once checking any fucking table. So the waitress was a young girl, and uh, at one point we're just asking, you know, like, hey, um, just curious when the food's coming. And then I saw she was getting really sad. She <clears throat> cried. I was with my son, and mm-hmm. I said, um. Please hold my please hold my baby and hug him. And I'm like, look, we're not mad at you. I have a I have a very good understanding of waitresses because of my wife. She went through that stuff during college and um she told me a lot of stories. Thank God no one touched her that I know of or I knocked their socks off. But um this girl was crying for a little bit. I'm like, look, seriously, we're upset with the kitchen, not you. You're doing great. And the whole time we were there, we are just making sure she was okay. And it just pisses me off when, you know, the, the manager's in the back and this girl's crying. You can't even come out. Like, it pisses me off how waitresses are treated. It, it really does suck. Um, and uh, sometimes it happens, too, like that, which I try. Some There's not always a rivalry between, like, the back of the house and front of the house. Sometimes there is, though. And I tried to show that a little bit. But um, fuck Edwin. I know. know. (laughs) He's such an asshole. But um, but no, sometimes uh, they do get mad because when it comes right down to it, the servers make and the bartenders make the most money by far in the restaurant. You know, because if they're doing a good job, their tips. I mean, the sky's the limit. You know, so the kitchen, though, they work just as hard. They get really sweaty, really dirty, no breaks, just like servers. Um, But, you know, they get like. 10, 11, 12 bucks an hour in Georgia anyway. Mm. And um, so, you know, it's really hard work for very little pay. And, um, you know, I just kind of wanted to showcase that a little bit too. But, you know, some managers are better than others. Some companies are better than others, you know. And, and yes, there's laws on the books. You know, you're not supposed to harass people. You're not supposed to do this or that to them. But I can't tell you how many times I've had to quit a job. Well, not had to. I wanted to quit a job. And I did. Because I saw stuff that was just wrong. Because it really does come down to, depending on the corporation, how big they are, how much they don't want to get a spotlight put on them, they'll tell you, okay, but are you, like, dead? Like, just suck it up. Right. So so what if he, did he really hurt you or did he just, like, touch your arm? You know, they make you think like you're the crazy one because they don't want to lose a customer. So it, it really does come down to you just smile and take it if you want to keep your job because they don't, they're not, they're not going to fire you like and say, that's why they fired you, but they'll find a way. They cut your hours. They drop you off the schedule. You know, they always find a way. I agree. I got one funny story that my wife told me. Well, it's funny now that and it's funny that she didn't get hurt. It's not funny if it could have gone another way, but there was this one guy she worked at a, 
I hop in uh, right next to the Rhode Island Mall, uh, the Providence Mall, Providence Place Mall, uh, whatever. Um, and there's this guy that had a sword, just <laughs> had a fucking sword attached to his waistband. You're right, hilarious. <laughs> it's not fun. It's funny now thinking about yeah. it in a comical sense, but no, it's not funny. Like if I was there, I'd, I would have, I'm Irish, dude. I would have got. I don't fight people, but when it comes to my wife, yeah, I would have gotten in that guy's face or something. But he wouldn't put it away, and Tara, uh, my wife, had to get a manager. It's like, bro, you got a fucking weapon, right? <laughs> and again, he could be totally harmless. He could be that person that loses his mind because they put mayonnaise instead of ranch on his chicken or something, you know. And people do; they lose their minds over the stupidest, most nonsensical shit in a restaurant stuff that's so easy to fix it's like just take a break breathe we'll fix it it's only food (laughs) and again wasn't a pocket knife he had a holster it's a sword was he was he like a a knight type of sword wielder or was it like scary ninja sounded like an old (laughs) random white guy that had some (laughs) perhaps flashbacks from a different lifetime (laughs) gotcha so, Brendan, you, let's let's go back again to Clementine's Awakening. Uh, do you, okay. have... you know, I, I want to say something about that real quick, because <laughs> this is now the fourth time, at least, that you've said, let's actually talk about the book. But <laughs> I want to defend myself here real quick. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the, fir- the first time I said, tell me about Savannah, then we said, you know, tell me about uh, about the relationship between Clem and her mom. Tell me about uh, the food service industry. And to me, what really worked for this book is just how I can't think of a better word than authentic. It feels, Mm. and it just, it feels the world, the world, the story takes place in the characters in that world just feel very authentic. The world feels very lived in. Um, and, and to me, like that's, that's the success of this book. That's why people should be ordering it right now. Um, so Patrick, go ahead, go to the book. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Where do I start? Because it goes from all right, whoever potential readers, if especially if you're watching this, don't trust her sweet appearance because she can write <laughs> very graphic and very intense horror. Um, I I thought it was fantastic. It just it really wasn't. I text Ken, uh, uh, Ken McKinley and uh, Brian right after I finished it. It's it's just really well done. I thought it was very authentic, like Brendan said. Um, one thing that stuck out to me that was kind of neat was a bench of uh, Forrest Gump. It's just a small detail, but you mix. Yeah. I'm a history nerd. I also love horror. Um, can't say which I love more when it comes down to it because they're just, uh, I love both of them. But you talk about those two so often that it's just a, it's like a nice uh, blanket of history and horror interwoven with each other. And you just get warm and cuddly in it, and then you die a terrible death because you yeah. love it. And we love it. <laughs> Which, by the way, I don't know if you noticed, Brendan's got it in the background uh, on the bookshelf right now behind his silver shamrock <gasps> mug. I see her. Hey, Clementine. <laughs> Can we talk about that cover real quick? Mm-hmm. Did you have, yes. did you suggest what it should be about, or how did that come about? No. Um, And I typically don't like uh, I've self-published two other novels and I'm, I, I might throw out like a 
this is sort of what I saw or whatever, but I really let the cover artists do their thing because I've been very fortunate enough that the cover artists I've worked with have been excellent. So like I have every trust that whatever their brain is going to come up with is going to be way better than anything my brain could come up with. So, but yeah, Keelan Patrick Burke, of course, is a master. He's a genius and he's the one, I don't know what all Ken told him. I just gave them like a vague description of the characters as I saw them. And they just went from there. And when I saw it, I was like totally in love. Like I never even imagined that's what the cover could look like, but it's absolutely perfect. You know, it fits it so well. So that does look like in your head, Rosemary, the captain and uh, Clementine. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I'm looking at the fucking title and I can't think of her <laughs> name for a second. Sorry, but I blame working and then coming on the show. <laughs> my apologies. Does, is that what they look like to you? In my mind, yeah. Is that what they look like in you guys' mind? No. That's a hard question because. <laughs> I saw the cover before I read the story, so... Fair enough, fair enough. I I don't think Clementine did, but it's so... I mean, it, it really is whatever it is. But Rosemary, yeah, and the scruffiness of the captain, yeah. I don't I know. Imagined, I imagined, like, a scruffy Captain Hook. Like, not quite <laughs> as fancy as, and dapper, you know, because obviously he's lived a little bit harder of a life, but... <laughs> But yeah, that's definitely like how I thought of him. Now, I don't know. I'm going to stop after this because I don't want to spoil anything. But uh, I like how the story progresses. I like the arc of Clementine. Um, The ending is horror in a nutshell. Uh, Beyond that, I think it's worth anyone's time to check it out. And won't it still be Women in Horror Month? Yeah, through the end of the month. Oh, okay, yeah, Thursday. It's the last Thursday of February. Right, so you'll have... Is it already the 28th on Thursday? So it'll be the 25th when this episode airs. Um, Yeah, so it'll have three days for Women in Horror Month. But you can buy it any other time. And if you hear this years later. And Mm -hmm. if you hear this... Well, I kind of use that as a prompt to, hey, guess what? You only got three days. But then I was going to follow it up with, if you hear this years later, you can still buy it. Mm-hmm. You Very are true. allowed to buy women in March. <laughs> yeah, we encourage we encourage everyone to buy women all year round. It, it's iffy, but we'll allow it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I think March is actually like, isn't it like National Women Month or something like that? Is I it? thought I saw that somewhere. I mean, there's something for everything nowadays, which is cool. But at the same time, it can be very hard to follow. You know, different days where like. It's National Hot Dog Day or National Margarita Day. It's like, who decided this? When did this happen? You know, and then you don't know about it until it's already over. <laughs> I, I still have guilt, though, even though when I, I, I get at nine o'clock, oh, my God, I didn't even eat a hot dog today. What the hell Brandon, am I doing? <laughs> Brandon, we talked about this with Tim McGregor in the last episode. It's because you're Catholic. True. The guilt thing. The guilt. <laughs> the guilt. What's it like down in Georgia? Because I've only driven through there to get to Florida. It like religion wise, is it is it big on Catholicism or? Oh, not at all. No, <laughs> smart. <laughs> at all. When I well, I mean, I am no longer a practicing Catholic. I don't even know what I am. I'm question mark leaning towards paganism, but um, I was raised a proper Catholic, you know, uh, and I quit when I was thirteen. 
somehow, I don't even know how, because the guilt that my mother threw on me should have been the end of me right then and there, but I made it through, (laughs) you know, but no, I came down here and church is a huge, it is like the social event in the South. So it's a common question when you meet people is they'll be like, where do you go to church? Where are your people? You know, where do you pray at? And I'm like, well, I don't anymore, you know, but I was raised a Catholic. They look like um, some freaking soot covered witch that just hopped off her pyre and is like, hey, y'all, you know, because <laughs> they they equate, you know, Catholicism, not equate it, but they definitely see it as something more mystical, something that's not quite right something very different than Protestant and mostly down here, it's mostly Baptist, but there's also like lots of other little smaller groups, you know, there's uh snake charmers and people who like, they have a church in the town next to us. They walk up and down the aisle with snakes and like kiss them and stuff. And sometimes they get bit and sometimes they run the risk of getting poisoned. So, <laughs> Cause they don't always use snakes that aren't venomous. <laughs> I think it's very telling that you have snake handlers right near you and it's the Catholics that get ostracized. That's what I'm saying. Like, it doesn't even make sense. But no, I, I, right, it kind of, but I'm a very big believer. As long as you're a nice person, I don't care what you do. Same. You know, you can worship whatever you want. Just don't come and try to force it on me. Or I, there's a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses down here. Uh, Jesus one Christ. time, I'm joking. <laughs> no, but like, and it's fine. But one time, scared the shit out of me. I was going for an early shift at a restaurant I was working at, so it was like not even four o'clock in the morning because I had to be there at four. So I had stopped at the gas station for a coffee, and I was sitting in the in the car, trying to like sip a little bit, get my head in the right place. All of a sudden, fist pounding my window. I screamed like coffee splashing everywhere. And I look over and it's this guy in a suit and he's smiling like creepy as hell. And then he picks up a watchtower and he like puts it to my windshield. I'm like, get the fuck out of my face. What's wrong with you? Like, I thought you were a murderer. <laughs> That's a horror movie. I've had I, know. I don't want your pamphlet. <laughs> yeah. I've had, I've had two of them at my door in uh, South Jersey and uh, they were just talking. They're like, Ask me if I believe in this. Do I believe God's the holy, uh, you know, watcher, wherever the hell they said? I'm like, I don't. Have a nice day. Like, I'm not going to tell you what I believe in. Like, uh, come on. My mom got so mad at me once. Uh, You know, the Mormons had just started coming into one of our towns in Connecticut. And again, very nice people. But I was just not in the mood. And I was a rebellious teenager and a bit of a jerk. So whatever. But they came knocking on the door and I answered it and they were like, do you want to talk about Jesus? And I said, no, we worship the dark one here. And I just shut the door in their faces. And my mom was like, great. Now you're telling people we're Satanists. Now who's going to come knocking on the door? (laughs) If you're asked that question by a stranger, which I have been in uh, in my wife's presence, too, if we're if we go to church, uh, even in Jersey, it's not self enough. It's weird. It's a weird question, mm-hmm. especially if you just met that day. Like, well, because it's a very personal topic. It's a loaded question. People, yeah. I don't think, think of that. Because, uh, you know what? Me and Michael David Wilson privately had a conversation about this. About I forget how it even started, about religion. And it just, it that you're essentially asking me, what are my 
core beliefs and what do I believe in everything or nothing, depending on what you believe in. It's, it's right. a little too much to be sold door to door like it's a vacuum cleaner in the 1960s. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And uh, yeah, and it's just, you know, and there's a time and a place for it, too. Like, I feel like and I, I don't know, maybe it was just speak. This is like five, ten minutes ago, but I was just in Texas right before the snow hit. I was visiting my sister who lives out there. So I made it home in time and I avoided the worst of it. But like when um I land in Atlanta, you know, someone just comes up. I don't know what religion they were. They had books or whatever, and they were walking up. And I, I already knew what was going to happen, like because he was lifting one of the books. He was coming up to me. There was a group of guys next to me. He totally ignored them. And he comes to me and I'm like, no, thank you. Just I'm good. Thank you. And in my head, I'm like, I should have been more of a jerk because it's like you walked past this group of guys, but you see the one woman on her own and you're like, oh, I could talk to her. She's not scary. She's got no one there with her. You know, it's just annoying. It's like in the time and place, you don't go and attack people out in the wider world you know, unless you've got an invitation, if you do, then by all means, talk right. happily about whatever you want, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Take my advice for when you're in New York. I've been twice, <laughs> once in the eighth grade, second with my wife. And uh, she said, Pat, this isn't Boston. Don't talk to people. <laughs> they aren't friendly here. I'm like, come on. No. The only friendly person I met there was another lady that was wearing a Boston hat. And so we're in like downtown Manhattan and I was having some serious anxiety attacks because I, I look, I don't like crowds. I like going to concerts, but that's because the music's there to distract me. I don't like Manhattan crowds. That is just too much. Too many people in one space. All the buildings are so big. Like it took a few hours for me to get used to it. But we were coming out of one of the museums one day and like this monk, I, I don't know. I, I can presume what religion he was, but I'm not certain. And he uh, started talking to us. And before we even walked into the uh, public uh, the public sidewalk, my wife said, again, don't talk to anyone. And he came up to me, grabbed my wrist, gave me a bracelet, tried to sell me a book, too. And I'm like yanking it off. I'm like, nope. And walked away. <laughs> She's like, what did I just tell you? I'm like, he talked to me first. But they were trying to sell me shit, you know? It, well, it, it's not just a bracelet for free. That's like the gateway gift. Like, we're going to give you this handsome bracelet, but you're going to have to listen to us for at least an hour. Just talk about what we believe. They walked by my wife to get to me because I look like a child with a beard. And she <laughs> looks like she's very not interested in their bracelets. <laughs> yeah, New York is crazy. I've I've only been there a few times myself, even though I grew up like less than two hours away from there. But it's the same thing. You know, my parents didn't want to take us there. If we went on a big city adventure, it was usually to Boston because that was a place that was, I mean, more welcoming. And there were still like tons of cool stuff to do there. It's got the best aquarium I've ever been to in my whole oh, life. Boston, like, for one. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, the food, you can't beat it. Like... We go to the North End and get pizza, and you get, like, a slice, like, this big that some grandmother's making behind the counter. And we, I swear we paid 50 cents for just a slice. And it came fresh out of the oven, and it's grandma's recipe. Like, that's the best. The North End uh, has, like, the best fucking Italian food. They do. And, and they have awesome sweet shops, too. 
So it's not even just the savory food. You can get like really good. They had big peanut butter cups and that was my favorite. Yeah. (laughs) But no, Atlanta is, um, Atlanta is different. And I, I mentioned that in the book too, you know, that you think you're in the South, you think it's all homogenous, but it's not. I mean, like any place, right? Any place. I mean, you can talk about the North and, you know, the North is a really big area. So people from, not that New York is New England, which a lot of people confuse anyway, (laughs) but but New York is very different from New Jersey, which is very different from Connecticut, which is very different from Massachusetts and Maine, you know, Georgia is very different. North Jersey is very different from South Jersey. Exactly. Exactly. You know, so you don't have just one type of Southerner. But and that that was the thing, too, that I really loved about going to Savannah, you know, because when I first moved down here, I was like, this is not at all what I imagined. Like Atlanta has skyscrapers, not skyscrapers, but really big, tall buildings. And it's very city like. And there's a lot of people like me who don't have accents. And I'm like, this is not the South. This is not what I imagined coming down here. You go to Savannah, though. Totally different. It's everything you thought it was going to be and more you know but and then you go to other other southern cities they all have their own flavor they've all got their own culture traditions and um it's just fantastic i definitely encourage there's so much traveling to be done around the world but definitely travel around the country too there's a lot of cool things to see yeah um hey so i should have asked this way earlier but did you say you're from stanford stafford oh stafford okay it's the home of the world famous stafford motor speedway Obviously should have known that. <laughs> it's like I, it's like as big as like I don't know, a child's park or something. <laughs> Cause I've been to Stanford. That was to see Steve Wilkos live and I, I I don't know. It's a it's a nice quaint town. Well, and I do have it in another one of my books. I do mention Stanford and Greenwich. It's sort of a class warfare book with witches versus Satanists called The Night She Fell. So definitely check that one out, too, if you want to see some Stanford mentions. <laughs> nice. That was a beautiful segue. Thank you. <laughs> We're always looking for good segues on this show. We don't have them. <laughs> that son of a bitch, Wilco, said, like, years before I even shaved my head, he goes, in five years, you'll look like me. In case you don't know what he looks like, he's bald. And I shaved my head like, I don't know, and starting in 2013, 2013. So that was like, a, uh, I don't know, a year after I saw him live. So I blame him. Um, let's talk more about Jennifer, your books. Mm-hmm. Now, before we go into any of those. Actually, I want to hear more about your experiences with Steve Wilkos. <laughs> I mean, that was it, man. I mean, the, the studio is fun. There was cool no sense. There was no censoring. The curse words, and uh, it's pretty weird watching trashy people and Steve Wilkos, who's a huge guy, interact so close. I didn't think you were actually <laughs> going to talk more about Steve Wilkos. <laughs> so, like, J- Jennifer, for the most part, you've uh, b- before Clementine's Awakening, it's been all self-publishing. Is that right? Yes, um, it wasn't supposed to necessarily be like that. Because uh, I, I, when I started joining the writing community, I had already written a couple books. And so I was kind of looking around to see, like, well, what do I do? And obviously, you see a lot of information uh, with various hashtags about traditional publishing. And I'm like, well, I guess I should try to go for that. 
you know, and um, I saw a bunch of self-publishing stuff and I made friends with several self-published authors. But when they started telling me the stuff they had to do, I was like, oh, my God, that sounds horrible. That's a lot of work. I don't want to do that. I don't even I don't even know where to begin. So I did um, the, you know, the Twitter pitch contests. I did a few of those. And so I sold my first book, which is actually the third book I wrote. And everything seemed to be going good and it was going to be published, but it was a very small press. I was going to be, I was a new author and I was going to be their first novel. Oh. So, but before, like, it was like a couple months before we were going to release, you know, they had financial issues. Unfortunately, they had to close, but the book was ready. Like it had this gorgeous cover. It was edited. So I was just like, well, I guess I'm going to try self-publishing now. <laughs> Cause I, it didn't make sense to me, you know, querying you guys know, cause you're writers too. It takes forever. And I was so eager. Like I'd already been marketing. I'd already been telling people my book's coming out. So I'm like, well, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to wing it. How hard can it be? Yeah. That, so she said later, you know, it was super hard and I'm still learning, you know, even though that was almost a year ago, you know, there's still so much to teach yourself if you're going to do it successfully. So I definitely encourage people, you know, other writers out there, don't limit your options, you know, because self-publishing is definitely a valid way to get your book out there. But just make sure you look into it. Don't just don't just think, oh, it's just as simple as hitting publish on KDP. There's a lot more that goes into it. So just cover your bases. See the conversation come up. Cyclic it's cyclical conversation where <laughs> you know, some idiot says something about self-published books are uh, basically they're not real books. And mm-hmm. I think the reason why is because there's quite a few that they don't put any work into it. They don't mm-hmm. edit it. I've seen quite a few authors that say they don't need editors. It's like, what are you talking about? Oh, it's I've giving, seen that. Even Stephen King needs one. and uh, Well, he needs one, but does he always use one? I don't is know. The question. No, because I think like I think there's times where he's just like, oh, whatever, I got it. You know, just proofread it. Look, if we get him on the show, <laughs> no I'll, I'll, I'll say Jennifer Susie has a question for you. I am a lifelong constant reader. I've got questions. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you have accusations. I have those too. <laughs> it, I love him so much. But you know, when you've known someone as long as I've known Stephen King, which is like going on 30, 30 plus years now, I've got a mixed bag of stuff I want to share. <laughs> like, why did you end the Dark Tower that way? You know, my whole life, everyone bitches about Game of Thrones, which I do too, because I'm, I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan. And they give George Martin a lot of hell. Wait, which one? The novels? Wait, they aren't the, out The yet. novels. <laughs> right. They're never going to be out, probably. <laughs> But, you know, I hear a lot of people complain and, and cry and like, oh, my life will never be complete. It's like, you know what? You didn't live waiting, hoping, fearing, and then finally giving up on the Dark Tower until it finally got completed. And then when you read that ending and you're like, he wrote himself into the book and then this happened too. like, come on, man. <laughs> Brennan, has, I, uh, Brennan has opinions on that, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I like the ending ending. You know, I, I've got problems with the, the, you know, final three books in the series. But yes. like the afterward 
to the epilogue to the, you know, one more last thing, guys. Um, I like that part. I am right with you on that. And I think that was a good way to do it. But yeah, it's the other stuff that got thrown in. And it's like, why did you do that to all of us? Why did you do that to yourself? I only read the first four. So I think I'll stop there. You should just stop there. (laughs) (laughs) Just make your own ending in your imagination. (laughs) I can't see how anyone, any book is better than number two. And then number three is pretty sweet too. Oh yeah, the drawing of the three is definitely. I mean, to this day, it's one of my favorite books. That's such a good book. Mm -hmm. Now, let's reel back to Jennifer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I've got a stupid question, uh, prefaced by a huge congratulations because you've got news today. Um, why, Why don't you? Why don't you announce it? So, as of today, I signed a contract with Silver Shamrock that I will have six books uh, due out in the next three years. So two books a year. And it'll be a mix of novels and novellas, which I have not written a novella yet, but I'm super excited to. So, but yeah, so I'm so, I, I loved working with Silver Shamrock and this is just really a dream come true to be able to be tied to them for another three years and to get my next books out through them. Cause they are, I mean, if you can choose your publishers and you're a horror author, they are definitely, they should be at the top of your list of people to reach out to. So, oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, they are someone who I want to end up working with too. Um, I didn't start by being friends with Ken, I started by being a fan of him as a businessman. Um, just kind of, well, you know, you got that with like Sam Koyesnik too, or or Flame Tree Press. Those are those mm-hmm. are my three favorite. Um, those are all good. Yeah, and they do a good product. They're consistent. They're very communicative. 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 I can't say words. <laughs> they speak well to people. Um, it's just all around good stuff. But for Ken, uh, he, you know, what really drew me to him was when Todd Keeslin was talking about him on Ink Heist, saying how. A lot of smaller presses fail because of their business. They aren't business people, and they don't focus on that, and Ken does, and that made me think, hey, that's someone I want to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, on top of that, too, because um, we had a really fun podcast talk, too, just me and him. Um, I edited and, that. You did? That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it was so much fun because – Obviously, he's a good business person because Silver Shamrock's doing really well and they're attracting really good authors. But he's also a writer and he's also a huge horror fan. So when you're working with someone who's into all the same things you are, you know, you have a lot of common ground and it makes it so easy. Like you can ask them questions that maybe if you were with a publisher that that did a whole bunch of stuff, you know, and maybe, I don't know, say science fiction or whatever was your editor in chief's big thing. I I don't know. You know, you couldn't necessarily talk to them about your characters or plot line or you could, but maybe you would feel like a, you know, a dork, like, Oh my God, I'm talking about like this or that. Are they going to get me? They're going to get you at silver Shamrock because we're all on the same page. We all have the same passions and the same first loves and come from the same fandom background. You know, we get all the same references and everything. Yeah, and Kenneth W. Kane, too, the editor. Oh, he's, he's fantastic, yeah. 
great guy, great editor, good writer. Um, what was I going to say though? Also, uh, oh yeah, about Ken. He, uh, we saw the list, the tentative list for. I'm not going to go through it now. Um, but we saw the tentative list for Unburying the Dead, and I gotta tell you, me and Brennan didn't know half of the, more than half of the authors or titles, and that's why. I believe I could speak for him. That's why we were so intrigued to do a podcast with him um, because we're learning as we go along. Like he introduced us to Ronald Kelly uh, for audio listeners. I'm holding up a first edition <laughs> fair by Ronald Kelly. And, and I feel like it's weird. I feel kind of like a dummy that I should have known him. But at the same time, I'm like, how are you going to know something if you don't know it? Mm-hmm. Um and Ron's now a friend of the show, and he's still knocking it out uh, 30 years later, give or take. Mm-hmm. So Ken's got he's, – he's shown us his collection of paperbacks in his house. It's unreal. I mean, this guy's got like 2,000-plus paperbacks. They're all horror. And, oh. um, yeah, he, he I, I hope there's more uh, publishers like him down the line. Well, I think so. I mean, I think um, the best ones, at least, we're very fortunate. Indie Horror has some of the best publishers I've ever seen, even if I've not worked with everyone. You know, you follow them on Twitter, you talk to, like, some of the people they publish, and it just seems like there's a lot of really good relationships, which makes for a lot of really fine work. I kick myself that I did not get onto Twitter and stuff sooner because, I, I mean, I've been a horror fan my whole life, but until maybe a few years ago when I got my Kindle, and even then, it was only, like, dabs here and there. I didn't really realize that there was an indie horror community, mm. you know? And I'm so grateful that I found it because, honestly, I feel like it's the best horror I've – best horror experiences I've had since I was a kid. You know, like, you read a lot of the big five books – you know, with the bigger names, some of them are really good, totally deserve to be, you know, listed in that top tier. But some of them, it's like you read it and you feel like it's just, you know, formulaic or it's not as real or exciting. You read indie horror and it is just so much of it is so authentic, so gritty, so real. You know, you get sucked right in and you're like, how the hell does nobody else seem to know who this person is? They're amazing, you know? So I'm really glad that I did find it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then one in, more in thing. Indie horror. Sorry, Pat, go ahead. I was just going to say one more book that uh, I can't shut the hell up about is <laughs> Devil's Creek by Todd Keeslin. That it's thing. such a good book. It's, I mean, you know, I've said it to Todd, I'm not trying to kick his, kiss his butt, but like, that's a book that I could see being something that's relished for decades or mm-hmm. I can see it lasts beyond his lifetime. And as many books as all three of us and the listeners love, let's be realistic. It's not probable that most of us are going to be known by the general public mm-hmm. when we're gone. We aren't. I think Todd's book, Devil's Creek, will be. If any of his books are, it'll probably be that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think yeah. Brett- Brennan was, I'm sorry to interrupt you both. Uh, I think Brennan was the first one to say that to me, and I'm pretty much parroting what he said to me to make that clear. I'm not the one that came up with that thought. <laughs> you know, I was going to say the the thing that resonates about the indie horror community, um, especially in regards to authors, 
is it's, you know, and no offense to people who have big multi-book contracts, but if you're writing, um, if you're writing for that big five, um, it's not the same as that person who comes home from work, uh, feeds the kids, puts them to bed and sits down from nine until they pass out because they have a story in them that they just have to tell. And they Mm -hmm. know that best case scenario, that story might pay like 70% of the uh, electric bill next month. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Um, You're, you're bleeding it out. Um, And that's, and you, and, and there's so many stories within this community, so many books where you can tell you the, the, the Mm -hmm. blood, sweat and tears that go into it. Well, I think that's the, you can see that in so many different, artistic forms too you know um when you try to appeal to the masses no matter what your medium is you're losing out on so much because something a lot of people struggle with which I don't know how but they still do is it's okay if not everyone likes you you know you're not going to be everyone's friend you're not going to create something that is going to be universally loved nobody is Mm. you know that's why someone like Stephen King can have thousands of reviews ranging from one star to five star and it's fine because it's not for everyone you know um and i think especially with horror a you know you ask most people do you like horror and they're like oh god no oh that's so gross <laughs> like yeah. only only sick people like that you know even though really there's so much horror sneaked into everything but you know that's a whole different other subject but if you're a horror author you're not in one of the most commercially popular genres. So you already have that stacked against you. But if you do try to go wide and do something to appeal with the masses, you're going to have lackluster results because if the horror itself is watered down to appeal to people who probably don't give a shit to begin with (laughs) that you just wrote this story, you're definitely not going to appeal to the horror fans who are like, who would have given you a lot more than like some, I don't know, some housewife in the Midwest who's just like, oh, murder. I'll just watch my like real life crime shows or whatever. Those are fine. (laughs) You know? Which is also horror. Which is also horror. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Um, And I would even argue like my mom loves uh, operation shows you know, where they're like really cutting into people, really doing surgeries. It makes me gag. She yells at me for watching gore on screen. And I'm like, okay, the gore is fake. That's all fake. You're watching someone with like hands in their body, squishing stuff. Like, how do you not see how disgusting that is? <laughs> or that Dr. Pimple Popper. I was oh, oh, no. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Like, Oh, <laughs> now that's horror because like I'm I'm cringing like oh I'm gagging just the thought of it. <laughs> I got one more question before we go into the uh, <laughs> questions. Uh, Demon to me, what is that about? I love oh. the cover. It's got a drummer and a demon in the background. Yes, well the cover is by Don Noble from. Um, oh yes. Yeah, he does the artwork for. Um, Rooster Republic. Mm. Yeah. So um, Demon and Me is, it was supposed to be published, but I ended up putting it out. I, I just love the story so much. It's sort of my going back to Connecticut story, you know? Um, it's about this drummer from Las Vegas, and mm. 
she's in her thirties. She's had a really hard life, but she finally made something of her life because she got the hell away from everything she'd ever known, cut off her family sort of thing. But um, it's not really a spoiler right in the first page. She gets news. Her mom calls and says, you know, hey, I've got cancer. Can you come home? So, of course, she says yes. But um, the problem is, is that she knows coming from a background filled with addiction, trauma, all sorts of other stuff. You know, she's plagued by demons, you know, from the past that she had to overcome. So she's afraid what's going to happen if she goes back into that environment again. So the story is kind of like it kind of came from the question of, you know, we all have inner demons, but what if they became real? So Mm. it's kind of a kind of a psychological horror. And I don't know, there's other stuff going on there, too. But it's it's a pretty dark book. But uh, I really loved writing it, you know, it. Because I, I had also moved to Las Vegas for a couple of years to kind of get away from, you know, life for a while when things got hard. It is just a great place to do that. Everyone out in Vegas is so cool. And I think a lot of people go there to start over. So you're not the only one. You know, you definitely meet misfits galore. And it, it's a great place to to rebuild yourself, to find yourself again. So hmm. I really had a lot of fun writing that story. And I am glad that so many people like it. I mean. You guys should totally read it. <laughs> well, I'm a drummer, so I mean, kind of got my attention. Well, I that was one of the only instruments that I ever had a shot in hell of trying to play. I was very bad at it, <laughs> but I tried. My boyfriend, he knew how much I loved drummers, especially John Bonham is like my favorite drummer ever. Oh, we are meant to be friends. <laughs> I have a Led Zeppelin tattoo for a reason. Yes. Oh, they're the best. Yep. But yeah, he he bought me a drum set and um, I tried to play it. Like I get my headphones on and I just kind of taught myself. I sounded horrible, I'm sure. But, you know, <laughs> it was all the spirit of trying to do it myself. But um, my poor drum set got killed in a storm. Oh, no. So, yeah, I was storing it. We had moved. So I was storing it in my dad's shed while we were in between places. So we had this horrible storm and trees were falling and my dad calls me. He's like, Jen, you might want to check the shed. I know you had some stuff in there. A tree went through it. And I'm like, oh man. Yeah. A tree went through my drum set, like uh, just right through the middle of it. It was horrible. I, I, I we buried it. So. <laughs> Poor drum set. <laughs> so what are you currently reading, Jennifer? <laughs> well, I've been obviously for women in horror month. I read a lot of women in horror anyway, but I've I've been only reading them this month. Mm-hmm. I I read um, uh, the Candisha Press anthology, the one that got away, which was absolutely awesome. And I also read um, the I can't even think the Five Turns of the Wheel by Stephanie Ellis. Yep amazing story i love folk horror too so that one was really great uh i also read another book that she did with a couple other ladies uh another anthology daughters of darkness that was very good and i read um i had it on my list for forever but i was like damn it i'm reading it for this month Hmm. i read deep by alma katsu Mm. that was awesome and i was a huge fan of the hunger anyway so i i knew going in i was gonna like this but I really did like it. It's kind of like, um, you know, a gothic ghost story, but on the Titanic. 
Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was really well done. And I just finished like two days ago, I finished a uh, Laurel high towers crossroads. So good. Oh, it's so good. It tore me to pieces. It was right. such a book. So I think I have time for one more book. I'm a very fast reader. As you can tell, I got time for one book. I've got a few on my list. So I just, True crime. That, that was one of my ones. Yeah. I really want to read that. You got to read true crime. I've got a crazy TBR, which you guys, I'm sure, have the same. So, you know, we can appreciate that. Yes. <laughs> so basically, yeah. our TBRs have become prioritized by what we're reading on this show, and then what we're reading on Unburying the Dead. Um, and I so, appreciate that you guys do the Christopher Pike cast thing. Oh, that, that's just I, I'm a guest on that. Oh, okay, but no, I love it. Like I love Christopher Pike. In the 90s, yeah. oh, my God. I read every book I could. I wish I still had those physical books. Christopher Pike is done by Cooper Beckett, Becca Fattrell, and Cassie Daly. And uh, I don't know their schedule, but mm-hmm. I, I would check them out. Subscribe to the PikeCast, the unofficial PikeCast of Christopher Pike. can't say it's official because yeah. it's not lying. It's going to not look good. <laughs> Oh, Brennan, what are you reading? I, I'm actually in the middle of one that you mentioned, uh, the one that got away from uh, Candisha Press. Um, yes. I just, I just finished a little bit earlier uh, Rowan Hill's Date Night Ablaze, and I think that's uh, th- there's a couple uh, contenders for favorite so far, but that's up there. I did not, I was not familiar with anything she's done before, but she's got my attention. Um, mm-hmm. Pat, you love Aussie horror. Um, that's, yeah. that's Aussie horror. That's, uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Rue with a little bit more, um, human, hu- human vengeance. <laughs> well, Baxter, Ellen Baxter talks very highly of her. So yeah, it's, it's a great anthology. And I mean, to anyone listening who, you know, I, I granted the month's almost over, but if like, you can't just think of what would be a really good book that would showcase a lot of diverse women and diverse types of horror because there's all sorts of different subgenres represented there. Get one of the candy suppressed anthologies. You will find something that you like. I mean, you might not like all of them. Anthologies are like that, but you will find something in there that you like. Yeah. yeah. And it's, 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 they always do such a good job of meshing familiar names with new names. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I'm enjoying my ride so far, and I know that I've still got Sonora Taylor coming up, that she's oh, going to knock my socks her off. Her story is so good. It is I, so I, good. I haven't I, read I, any of her stories that aren't, so. Well, I'm a cook as well. Her story has a lot to do with cooking. I will just say that. So if you enjoy cooking or even enjoy eating very nice food, you should probably you should read this. Yes. Nico <laughs> Bell, speaking of uh, food, are came out with Fright Food last year through the Rewind or Die series. Oh, I can't wait to get started. I've that's been um I there's been so many on that list, the Rewind or Die that I need to read. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um oh, it's my turn. <laughs> so, I got 30 minutes left in the audio version of Stephen Graham Jones's It's my first Stephen Graham Jones book, <laughs> The Only Good Indians. That book is so fucking good. He is one of my favorite authors. I love him so much. I'm almost Annie Wilkes-ish about him. Don't tell him that I said that. It's all right. He probably <laughs> isn't listening to the show. 
<laughs> like he's, you know, and I, I, again, I hadn't heard from him until I started on the Twitter writing community. Same. And uh, so I read Mongrels uh, a year or so ago. Mm-hmm. I am not a werewolf person. I just never have been. You know, they're just like, eh, to me. But that book was one of the best books I've probably ever written, werewolf or not. It was so good. And I loved uh, The Only Good Indians, too. Yes. It, it's it's a lot different than anything I've ever read. And, yeah, I'm listening to an audiobook, and I'm saying I read it. Sue me. <laughs> <laughs> Audiobooks are books. <laughs> I know that some people are touchy about that, so I don't, I don't care. You're getting the story into your head. Yeah. There's people that are touchy if you don't read a physical book. But you know what? I live in a very small apartment, and I don't have room for all the physical books or really the money to buy all the physical books I would want to buy. That's why I have my Kindle. Soar so much. And the Kindle books are super cheap in comparison. I can read much more than I ever could if I was having to buy paperback prices, you know? Yeah, same. I only got one bookshelf, and... uh I had to store most of my Stephen King books in this really nice um, storage bin. It's like waterproof and stuff because I I need more room for my indie stuff. And now I'm getting super picky with my physical books because I just don't have the room. Yeah. I hear you. Um, and I'm also reading Fear by Ronald Kelly. We will be recording that episode, and I think I, I can announce this now, with a uh, first-time guest host. Um, he goes by Well Red Beard. Uh, so about to say his Oh, yay! <laughs> yeah, so he's gonna join us for that episode, so that'll be fun. And uh, the other book I'm reading is the Pike, um, the Christopher Pike one. But after that, uh, getting on Todd Keeslin's book, can't think of it on the top of my head. Brennan, can you think of uh, it? Life Transparent. There you go, buddy. Mm-hmm. We got such him a on... great title, too. Yeah, we got him on next week. Can't wait to talk to him. Um, Jennifer, last question is, what are you currently working on? Well, I'm working on, it's sort of a top secret, but because until I get like everything finalized for a novel, I don't like to talk about it because then I'll jinx myself. But I do have a novel that I'm brushing up, getting ready, getting cleaned up for Silver Shamrock. Um, But I also have a short story that'll be coming out sometime this year. Uh, on the next Candy Press volume. So it'll be volume four as yet untitled. Um, and for The Night She Fell, which is my horror mance, horror slash paranormal romance type thing. Nice. I've got the self-published sequel coming out this fall called She Who Destroys. And also much closer, I've got in May uh, through Rediscue Publishing, I've got a YA trilogy it's a dark fantasy trilogy the first book called the mother we share is coming out and i should have a cover and information about it soon but um i'm really excited for this one because it's actually the first book that i wrote like the first real book that i wrote oh, coming nice. out. yeah it's coming out now because you know publishing is crazy what you write first doesn't necessarily always come out first you know but um it's sort of based on a story that because uh, we're a horror-loving family. My sister used to tell her kids to the point where they'd get scared and they'd call me up on the phone, Auntie Jen, she said the green-eyed girl's coming to get us again and she's in the closet. So I, I guess that planted a seed because the first book I wrote, I was like, hmm, I should really revisit this idea of this 
girl haunting other girls while she sleeps. So, so I did. <laughs> That's a good thing about horror. It's free therapy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> where can people follow you? Uh, well, I have a website. It's jenniferlcc.com, and it's got all my links to everything else. Uh, it's got all the purchase links for uh, my books on Amazon. Um, I'm very active on Twitter and Instagram, especially. I'm on Facebook, and I do have an author page there, but I really only use that for like family and friends. So it's best if you want to follow like any updates or stuff to do it on Instagram or Twitter, uh, which is usually Banshee Tales. So since uh, that Irish ancestry, you know, I love Banshees. So. <laughs> Right on. I totally dig that. Uh, Brennan, any final thoughts? No, just thank you for uh, spending almost two hours with us. We appreciate your time. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs> any final thoughts, Jennifer? Um, Just stay tuned. I mean, I've got all sorts of stories that I'm working on and coming out with. And I love talking about anything horror. So even if it's not about my books, Feel free to hit me up wherever. Send me a message. I don't care. Well, I shouldn't say send me a message. I'll be flooded. But you know where to reach me if you want to talk about things. So. <laughs> Brennan, why don't you uh, tell us real quick what hat you're wearing for for audio listeners. I can't see it. Oh, so we've got a uh, Black Hills Press from uh, Shane Hawk hat uh, as opposed to uh, Patrick's T-shirt. I'm glad to see you changed your shirt. Good work there. Yeah, I'm wearing a shirt for a project I'm working on. <laughs> if you want to see it real quick, it's blurry. very blurry. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> I'm, wearing, I'm wearing Freddy on a tarot card. Nice. <laughs> well played. That's pretty sweet. Thank you. So, I only got to wear it once for Halloween. That's not enough. <laughs> my final thoughts are this. Please go look at and listen or watch whatever you prefer, both to our last episode with Tim McGregor. And after listening to this episode, well, I'm not sure which one is exactly next, but it's either Jared Barbie, one of the uh, co-founders of Death's Head Press, or Todd Keeslin to talk about that newer book. And who the hell knows what else we'll talk about. <laughs> Todd Keeslin. So that guy can talk for hours. Jennifer, thank you for almost being here for two hours. Really appreciate your time. Oh, anytime. I'd love to talk some more about anything else. <laughs> well, you have a uh, welcome back pass from us. Brennan, thank you as always for being my co-host. Listeners, we appreciate you spending this time with us, bringing, you, uh, bringing us with you wherever you are going at the moment. Thank you, and please stick around for the next episode. Deadhead space. And all you have to do is go to the box book box. I'm so bad. Can't even get through a fucking intro. That's okay. I never do this anymore. I'm so sorry. No, Jennifer. no, no. I, you know what? I was going to throw that out there. It's been like 30 episodes since we had to do a third take of the intro. So no Not worries, bad. man. It must be my powers or something like <laughs> throwing things off. <laughs> Jennifer, I will tell you real quick before we, yeah, I know we're recording, but before we officially jump in, um, when he, um, when, when he bought my 
uh, book that's coming out in July. He -hmm. talked to me for like 15, 20 minutes about, you know, uh, what he liked and, you know, what he would improve. Because I was originally submitting it somewhere else and he was just taking a look at it for me. So Mm -hmm. 20 minutes he had me on the hook before he said, oh, yeah, by the way, I want the story. It's like, you know, (laughs) that's very him, you know, so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna like uh, totally change your world with just one brief sentence out of nowhere. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>